pray together. Lord, we love you, and we do hunger for you, God. We hunger for that grace, and we hunger for that uh, truth, and we hunger for that connection, God. Lord, that connection that provides peace, and that connection that provides joy, and that connection that so intimately intertwines the created with the Creator. And so, God, we just praise you. We praise you this morning. We love you. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. God, we're going to discuss something this morning that is a little deeper, uh, a little, maybe not deeper, but heavier, God. And, and, uh, and Father, I pray that, that as, we, as we discuss this, God, as we dig into your word and uh, see, see what's happening in the book of Obadiah, Father, I pray that you uh, would nevertheless show up in your grace. You would nevertheless show up and, and, and help us to see who you are behind even these difficult things that can happen between brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we ask that you would just move during this time, that you would just uh, reveal yourself, reveal your truth, speak into our hearts as we open our ears, listening for the truth of your word spoken to us by your Holy Spirit. God, use me as your tool as I stand upon the authority of your word, but behind the cross so that you may receive all of the glory. Lord, I love you. It's in Jesus' holy name that I pray. Amen. Well, we, we did finally uh, finish up our series on Jonah last week. And, uh, and so what we're doing is we're just moving one book to the left, okay? Uh, and so if, if uh, you've been uh, getting used to finding Jonah in your Bible, just uh, go one book to the left there. We will be in uh, Obadiah, the book of Obadiah, uh, <coughs> this morning. And, uh, and we will uh, be reading just, just a portion of it, but it's, uh, it's one of those one-chapter books, and so, so uh, it's, there's, there's not just a, a whole lot to go through in this book, but what's in this book is key. And what's in this book is key for the relationships that we have with each other within the church. Uh, as you're turning there, a few years ago, I went to go pray with a man who was dying. Uh, his, I, I knew his daughter very well, and uh, I went to go pray uh, with this man. And, and when I got there, I was expecting to see uh, the woman uh, who told me about it uh, to be there. But when I got there, she wasn't there, uh, but her brother was. Uh, and so I went inside the home, and, and the brother showed me where his father was, and, and I went and I prayed uh, with this man. Uh, he, was, he was on vent, and we, we tried to talk for a little bit, but the, he just couldn't do it. And so uh, I, just, I tried to encourage him a little bit, and I went uh, and, and I prayed with him. But as I was leaving, uh, after, after praying with him, as I was leaving, uh, the brother pulled me to the side. I'd already gotten outside, but the brother came from behind and grabbed me, and he said, I just want to let you know something about my sister. She's crazy. And, and I mean, uh, that, it, was, it was awkward. It was a really awkward moment for me. He pulled me aside and said, listen, my sister is crazy. And, and he, he just went into this whole spiel about how everything that his sister did had, was, was hurting their family. How it was tearing their whole family apart. And, and I just kind of had to stop him and, and say, listen, you know, I don't know anything. I'm not informed. I'm not in on any of the things that you're telling me about. Uh, but uh, I do know your sister and I'm not going to talk bad about her, so I'm just going to uh, go on. And so, and so I left the situation. Well, I thought I left the situation. A few hours later, 
I received a phone call from this lady's son. And, and she called me. Or excuse me, he called me and he says, uh, listen, uh, I know that you talked to my uncle today. And uh, I know that he probably told you some stuff. And, and I want to let you know uh, some things about him. And so he went into a spiel about how this guy was a, a guy of no character. And how this guy was a liar. And on and on and on and on. And so I tried to, tried to counsel him a little bit. And tried to help him to pull himself out of the situation uh, as best I could. But, but here's, here's what happened is... is as, as I knew this lady, and as this, this lady was a part of the fellowship that I was in, uh, I knew this, was, this wasn't something that was, that was just going uh, to, to go away. I knew this was, this was something bigger. And, and so uh, I, I thought to myself, you know, I went there to, to go and pray with this guy, and I got pulled into the middle of this family war. And so I said, I need to make a phone call. And so I called a mentor of mine and said, listen, what's... Let me just give you some, some you know, things that are going on and, and, and ask you, what do you do? How do you, how do you step in? How do you help in this situation? And, and even though he wasn't able to you know, just say, do this, do this, do this, he was able to tell me something that is very revealing. He said, Nelson, what you experienced today, I've experienced over and over and over and over again in my ministry. It is not uncommon families to be at war. Then, since that time, I have experienced my own experiences, I have, I have seen my own things, and I would, I would say you could apply that truth and take it not just from the family at home, but to the family of God here in the church. Just think about, about a month ago, you all remember about a month ago uh, in North Mississippi, a man was shot and killed because there was a fight in the church. Now, granted, to, for, for fairness, he wasn't shot and killed by someone within the church. He was shot and killed by a police officer. But listen to this. A police officer had to be taken or assigned to the church because of a fight within the church. There is a problem. J.R. Thompson says, Man's inhumanity to man is the most sad and depressing spectacle that earth affords. When family and affinity bind men together, those who snap those ties and assail their brethren are monsters of iniquity. So that's what our title is this morning. Monsters of Iniquity. And we are going to look into a, a case like this in the, in the scriptures, in the book of Obadiah. And we will see the monstrosity of brothers at War. And we are going to lay out some ways, some advice that we need to heed in order that we do not sin against our brother. We are going to, we are going to look at a warning from God to, so that we, we will have motivation more so in respect for God not to sin against our brother. And then we will see grace tucked in behind it. We will see grace tucked in behind it. So I, I want you to read this with me, okay? Uh, Obadiah, no chapter, <laughs> verses 10 through 17. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble." 
You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down the fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. You, as, excuse me, as you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. In order to understand uh, what's going on in the book of Obadiah, we need to do a little bit of a background, okay? We need to, we need to take a background and snapshot of what is, what is happening in the lives between Edom and Israel. Uh, and, and what happens here is, is when we think Israel, Israel is, is the name that God gave Jacob, okay? Israel equals Jacob. Genesis 32, 28. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. And when we hear the word Edom, we don't need to think just the the nation of Edom, but we need to think Esau. Genesis 36, 1 says, this is the account of Esau. So that is Edom. And so with this setting of Jacob and Esau, we have to go all the way back to a birth story in the book of Genesis to see the hostility between Jacob and Esau. And what we see, even when we first open the pages of Scripture to, to these characters, what we see as we open these pages is that these twin brothers were fighting even before they were born. That is sibling rivalry right there. Uh, Genesis 25, 21-26 says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled, they wrestled, they fought each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. I will, uh, excuse me, one people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's hill, so he was named Jacob. All right? And so they have a hairy red kid named Esau, and they pull him out first, and then they have Jacob, who happens to be holding on for dear life, you know? And, and so this is, this is what we have, but, but they are fighting. They are fighting from the very beginning. And then added to this is that God chose Jacob. Well, added to the, the animosity and the struggle on top of this is that God chose Jacob instead of choosing Esau to carry on the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis chapter 12, where, excuse me, God says, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars and you will be my chosen people. That, that, that covenant that he gave to Abraham, he says, that's going through the line of Jacob. That's not going through the line of Esau. But, but there's a problem here. There's, there's a big problem here. First off, Esau technically was the firstborn. Esau, and even though they're twins and they're the same age, Esau technically, because he was, he was pulled out of his mother first, was the firstborn. And secondly, uh, Esau was Isaac's favorite. 
And so Isaac, he had, he had a, a run, a, a front line, I guess you could say, in order to receive the blessing. He, he, he had the birthrights of the first son, and then he had, he had a straight line, a direct path to receiving the blessing from his father of the Abrahamic covenant. And so what we see in the book of Genesis is we see Jacob manipulate Esau. We see Jacob manipulate Esau in chapter 25 and, and steal his birthright from Esau. And then a couple chapters later, with the help of his mother, because his mother preferred Jacob more than, he, more than she preferred uh, Esau, they collaborate together and they, they make a plan and they go and they get the, uh, the blessing from Isaac for Jacob. Well, at this point, as you can imagine, Esau was not pleased. <laughs> Uh, and Esau, Scripture teaches us, wanted to kill Jacob. And so Jacob ran away. Jacob ran away. He got married. And, and what we do see in Genesis, praise the Lord, is that there was a brief time of reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. But the feud carried on through their descendants. And this is where we go from the hostility between Jacob and Esau to the hostility between Israel and Edom. Edom never got over their bitterness towards Israel. Ezekiel chapter 35 verse 5 says that Edom harbored an ancient hostility against Israel. And they, they constantly showed it. They constantly were, were working against the Israelites. In the Exodus, uh, it says the, Edom, the Edomites forbade passage through their territory as, as, the Egypt, I mean, excuse me, as the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness. When, when Israel came to conquer the land of Canaan, guess what? The Edomites stood up with the Canaanites in order to oppose the Hebrews. David and Solomon, finally, when we, when we get past all these times, we get past this time uh, of Exodus and, and we get past this time of Judges and we finally get into the monarchy, we see David and Solomon finally, through the grace of God, subdue the Edomites. But as they die, as their kingdom uh, weakens because of evil that comes in, into it, and other kings, other evil kings, start to take their place, the Edomites regain their independence. And a constant struggle is, is seen throughout Scripture between Edom and Israel. Now, this is, this is one of many struggles in Scripture with Israel. This is one of many. The Philistines is, is something that comes to the top of my mind as one of many struggles. But there's a, there's a profound difference between Edom and the Philistines, per se. Is that through all of this, through everything that Edom had done, through all their struggles, through all of this, God still considered both of these nations as brothers. And He intended them to act that way. How do we know that? Because he put it in his law. Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 7 says, Do not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. And in this context of hostility between brothers, we return to the prophecy of Obadiah, realizing that as brothers, the sins of Edom are compounded exponentially. And here's where we draw it home. As brothers in Christ, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as the family of Christ, when we sin against each other, those sins are expounded or compounded, excuse me, exponentially. So what are the sins of Edom that we find in this book of Obadiah that we must be careful not to commit against each other? And we start in verse 10. It says, Because of the violence against your brother Jacob. There we must not commit violence against our 
brother. Now, this is a blanket statement. This is kind of the intro statement. When you get to uh, verses 2 through 9, uh, Obadiah is laying out the punishment for uh, Edom. And then he gets to verses 10 through 16, and what he does is he, he lays out the reasons for the punishment. And verse 10 is kind of the introduction to what Edom did to Israel. And so he throws out this blanket statement at first. He throws out this blanket statement, you have been violent against your brother Judah. And I'll start using Judah instead of Israel at this point, but, but you can read the same thing. Judah is just the southern kingdom of Israel. Uh, and and as, we'll, as we'll see uh, shortly, uh, at this particular time, Edom did not attack Israel, Judah, whatever. <laughs> Edom did not attack uh, Judah, okay? They had a more subtle violence. It says, your violence against your brother, but this is not describing a time where they came in war against their brother Judah. This was a much more subtle violence, but... But we must not neglect the obvious truth that a direct attack against a brother in Christ is still very, very sinful. It is a violent sin as well. God says as much just a few pages over to your left. If you want to just flip a couple pages over to Amos chapter 1, it says, For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because he pursued his brother with a sword. You know what? That's a direct attack. Anybody's pursuing me with a sword, I consider that a direct attack, okay? And so he's talking about right here, I will not turn back my wrath because you have pursued your brother with a sword, stifling all compassion because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. And so God called Edom down on their direct attack on Israel and God calls us down on our direct attacks against each other, particularly Within our own fellowship. Now obviously we're not coming at each other with swords. And very rarely, and that was what I mentioned earlier, is, is certainly the exception. We're not coming at each other with guns. We're typically not coming at each other with fists. But oftentimes we are coming at each other. Oftentimes we come at each other in way of accusation. We accuse each other of things that we may not even be aware of, or not, not even sure of, rather. Sometimes we come against each other in physical altercation. I remember a, a pastor, in, uh, or a professor, excuse me, in seminary, told a story about how he was standing at the, at the exit to the church after church was over, and a man walked up to him as he was leaving and punched him in the face. Sometimes it does come through physical altercation. Sometimes it is when we judge each other with a critical spirit. Excuse me. With a critical spirit. Not, not judging each other so that we can benefit each other, but judging each other with a critical spirit to tear each other down, particularly when the action is not sinful that you are judging against. We attack each other by public humiliation. Not saying anything until you're in a situation where there's a lot of people and then bringing it up in front of everybody instead of going to a brother one-on-one. We, we attack each other when we use demeaning speech. When we talk in such a way that, that we are intentionally tearing each other down, we attack each other in many ways. You may have been attacked. You may be the attacker. I don't know where you are, what you have done, what you've experienced, or anything like that. When we do this, it is sin. 
when we do this, we are sinning. And we will be under the discipline of the Father. And we'll get to that later. But what are some of the more subtle? I mean, that's obvious for the most part. That's pretty obvious. If, if, if I have a, a grudge with somebody and I go and, and attack that person for the sake of harming that person, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that's pretty obvious. That's, that's an attack. We're not, that's, that's pretty out there. But, but what we see with Obadiah, in the book of Obadiah, and what we see with Edom is they attacked in a subtle way. They didn't, they didn't attack face first, head to head. They didn't go to war with Israel. They didn't declare war and say, you're my enemy, let's fight. No, they attacked in a more subtle way. And I want to start with verse 11. It says, On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. First off, Edom stood aloof. Edom stood aloof. What's happening here in this passage, most scholars believe, is when the Babylonians came and attacked and destroyed Judah. And they came and they sacked the city of Jerusalem. They tore down the walls of Jerusalem. They slaughtered thousands of people. They burned the temple of our God to the ground. They took many into captivity. Judah was in ruin. Judah was in absolutely ruin. And what did their neighbors do? What did their brothers do? What did Edom do? Sat back and watched. Sat back and watched. I think the King James Version, uh, or I personally like the King James Version of of verse 11. Instead of saying uh, they stood aloof, it says that they stood on... Bandits come by and they beat up uh, this man, and they rob him. Right? They beat him. They beat him half to death, and then they rob him, and then they leave him on the side of the road. And then a priest and a Levite come by, and then what does the scripture teach us? It says that they pass by on the other side. Now, obviously, obviously, Jesus was teaching against this. But at least, at least for them, we can kind of imagine in our own mind that they could have been justifying their actions. They could have been saying, okay, well, I'm a priest, I'm a Levite. If I get my hands dirty in this, I will become ceremonially unclean. And whatever I'm heading to, I may not be able to perform those duties that God wants me to do. And so it's not an excuse, but at least we could kind of see that maybe there was a reasoning behind it. But there was no such occasion for Edom. Edom didn't resist bringing aid to Judah because they said, this isn't my fight. This is Israel's problem. I'm not going to worry about it. I don't want to get involved in something that's not mine. That's not the reason they didn't get involved. Edom didn't, not, didn't uh, resist aid to Judah because they, because they thought, you know what, if, if we step in, then this giant kingdom of Babylon is going to come down on us as well, and we don't want to get into this fight. We, we may end up losing this fight. And so it wasn't fear that detracted them from helping out their brothers. But rather, Obadiah tells us, you were like one of them. You were like one of them. You intentionally stood back. And as you stood back, 
you became like them. Because you wanted them to do what they were doing. And when we sit back, when we sit back, church, when we sit back as brothers are being attacked, we are just like one of the attackers. It reminds me of the play Julius Caesar. It reminds me that there was a plot being hatched to kill Caesar by the Roman Senate, headed up by a man named Cassius. And Cassius knows that he needs a key player from within, uh, from within Caesar's inner circle to make this thing work. And so he comes and he pulls Marcus Brutus to the side and he says, Listen, man, we, the people don't like Caesar anymore. Things are not working. Caesar's going to try to change this from a, from a republic into a, into a dictatorship. And, and the people are going to revolt. We need to take care of Caesar now. And he persuades, he persuades Brutus. Eventually, the Senate attacks Caesar. And the last sword to be plunged into Caesar is that of Brutus. And we get three of the most powerful and memorable words uh, in all of theater history. Et tu, Brute. And you, Brutus, and you, my brother, my friend, someone who was close, someone who knew my secrets, someone who knew who I was from the inside out, it's you as well. He's betrayed by someone who who was so incredibly close. Because when these conspirators were plotting, he stood back. He did not step forward. He did not stop them in their tracks. Listen, let us not betray our brothers. Let us not betray our brothers and sisters in Christ by standing on the other side while they are being attacked. Leslie Allen puts it like this, Here is the height of unbrotherliness that he who should have regarded himself as one of us behaved like one of them. He sat back and watched. Secondly, they attacked them with their lips. Verse 12 says, You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. Edom was a proud country. Edom was a proud people. They were settled in the mountains. I don't know if you've ever seen the city of Petra, maybe on Google uh, Pictures or something like that, but Petra is literally a fortress that has been carved into a mountain. They started from the outside and worked their way inside. You know what that means? No one can sneak up on you from behind, okay? That means you are pretty secure. It's almost an impregnable uh, fortress, and they knew it. They knew they were tough in military. They knew they were strong. And as their brother Judah was being attacked, they felt untouchable. And they developed a sense of pride. Verse 3 says, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? And it led them to look down on their brothers. And here's what I want to say is that we have this struggle as well. In a different way, but we have this struggle as well. We see a brother or sister who is struggling with something 
whether it be sin, whether it be doubt, whether it be health, whether it be finances or, or anything of the like. And we, we may have a genuine pity on that person. We may have a genuine, sincere, sincere heart for that person. But sometimes secretly and sometimes not so secretly, we wonder what really got them into their situation. And we arrogantly think to ourselves that at least we're in a better situation than they are and we must be doing something right that they are doing wrong. I'm guilty. I have done that before in my life. And I have repented for that attitude in my life. But when our hearts and our minds have this attitude, we tend to say things that we should not say. And what we see the Edomites saying is the Edomites rejoiced at what they saw. The Edomites boasted about what they saw. I love one commentator that I was reading. He just kind of tried to uh, make it personal. He tried to kind of give you the, the, the story from the eye of the Israelite. And he just at the very end of, of, of explaining this particular verse, he goes, Just shut your big mouth! <laughs> I, I loved it. Because, I mean, couldn't you imagine... These people are over them, rejoicing over their their pain and their suffering. They are boasting that it was them and it wasn't us. Just shut your mouth. And sometimes, if we really don't like somebody, we can be in that situation too. And we know that's wrong. Proverbs 24, 17 says, Do not gloat when your enemy falls. When he stumbles, do not let your heart rejoice. And so, this is a sin of the tongue when when we boast over our enemy but i would i would suggest that it's probably not our biggest sin of the tongue here at Wesson Baptist Church i would suggest that in this context our biggest sin of the tongue is gossip we gossip and gossip is a plague you know why he's acting that way don't you It's because he didn't get what he wanted when such and such happened. Well, how do you know? Did you ask him? Did you talk to him about it? Well, you know why they can't afford to pay their bills, don't you? It's because of all the frivolous spending that they do. Well, how does that concern you? How is that lifting those people up? And how is it your business to share it? Your gossip may very well be true. I want you to hear that. It's not just a lie that's gossip. Your gossip may very well be true, but it doesn't make it anything less than gossip. And it is sin, and it is destructive. The book of Proverbs talks about it this way. It says that a gossip betrays a confidence... It says that a gossip causes quarrels. It says that a gossip separates close friends. And it says a gossip hurts us down to our most inward parts. That is, it is the deepest of wounds. And it remains. We must not attack our brothers with our mouths, particularly to and through someone else. The third thing that Edom did the grossest assault of all was they helped plan the attack. 
They help plan the attack. Verse 13 and 14 says, You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in the day of their calamity, in the day of their disaster, or excuse me, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. Edom, uh, Babylon comes in and, and they, they sack the city and they are, they are in the middle of destroying it. And because they have ties with Edom, Edom comes in with them not to fight, but to loot in order to plunder, to take away from what was their brothers. And then, and probably because of, uh, they were able to do this because of this next part, but in collaboration with Babylon... Because they were locals, because they knew the roads, they knew everything that, where the fugitives would try to escape to. The Babylonians used the Edomites in order to cut them off at the pass and then return them to uh, the Babylonians and either to either be taken into captivity or to be slaughtered. There is very little in this world as detestable as premeditated violence. That's the difference primarily between first and second degree murder and in states with the death penalty, it is the difference between life and death. How much worse is it then when we plot against our own family? And this happens in the church. This happens in the church. I was at a conference where a pastor stood up and told a story how he lost his job how he lost his ministry that he walked into a business meeting completely unaware that anything was going on and they, they had a vote to have him removed can you imagine can you imagine he had no idea no idea whatsoever that is cowardly and that is sin we must never be a part of a plan to harm a brother in Christ. And if you become aware of such a plan, you expose it. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 10 through 19 gives us a little insight into this. It says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not give in to them. If they say, come along with us, let's lie and wait for someone's blood, let's waylay some harmless soul, let's swallow them alive like the grave and whole, like those who go down to the pit, we will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot with us and we will share a common purse. And let's, let's try to take away this uh, literal concept of money here, okay? You can apply anything you want, things that we desire in here. Join my side and we will get the thing that we want. We're striving to get this thing. We want this to change. We want this to happen or whatever. So let's conspire together in order to get this thing to happen. He says, my son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their paths. For their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed blood. How useless to spread a net in full view of all the birds. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They waylay only themselves. Such is the end of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the lives of those who get it. 
This text leads us perfectly into our next point, which is, what is God's response? What is God's response to these sort of actions against our brothers and sisters in Christ? Actions of attack, actions of violence, spiritual violence, emotional violence, or, or violence where we stand back and allow others to attack, or violence when we gossip or sin with our mouth, or violence when we plot with someone who is going to attack. What is God's response to that? Verses 15 through 17. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. Verse 15. As you have done, it will be done to you. What did Edom do? Four things that we could specifically point out. They betrayed their brothers. They stole their money. They cut down their fugitives and they brought them to their lowest point in their history. And how did God punish Edom? Verse 7, it betrayed by those closest to them. It says, all your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive you and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. How did God deal with Edom? He, as they took Israel's money, so he had them looted. Verse 6, but how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. How did God punish Edom as they cut down the fugitives of Israel? So God cut down their fighting men. In that day, declares the Lord in verse 8, Will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, O Taman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. What What did Edom do to Israel? It brought them to the lowest point in their history. And in verse 4, we see that God says, Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. I think as we read through Obadiah, maybe, we say, well, that's Old Testament. That's Old Testament. That's, that's tough and that's bold, but that's Old Testament. But this concept has not changed in the New Testament. Excuse me. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Now I want to give you this encouragement though. I want to give you this encouragement because the, the reality is that should terrify us. The reality is that that. We should love God and our love should drive us to being desperate and, and, and just all out, sold out for God. But there's a flip side to that as well and that's the fear of God. And we also ought to fear God and that fear of God will also make us desperate for God and make us sold out to God. This, this verse right here should terrify us. 
There's also a filter that we have to take any book that we read in the Old Testament and bring it and, and apply it to our new covenant lives. We, we have to apply the filter of the grace of Jesus Christ that has been poured out for all sinners, but particularly for those who have turned to Him in faith. And so what about us? How is this truth of, as you have done, it will be done to to you, your deeds will return upon your own head. How is it applied differently when the conflict is between two believers? When the conflict is between more than two believers, but it is children of God. First off, we are not under the wrath of God. The wrath of God is completely and totally absorbed through the cross of Jesus Christ. Completely and totally absorbed through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so what Edom was to experience was complete and total destruction. If you read the history, by the time uh, Roman rule started coming over into Israel, Edom had been completely wiped out. In fact, the last humiliating thing that happened to the nation of Edom is that their final people were captured by the Israelites and they were all forced to be circumcised so that they would lose their national identity. Here is, here's the reality. God had poured out His wrath on the Edomites. He destroyed them completely. And those who are not found in Christ Jesus will still experience the wrath of God for eternity. But we are not under that wrath. Praise God in the name of Jesus Christ. But we are under His discipline. We are under the discipline of God because He loves us and He wants to correct us. So that we can get back in line with Him. And here's the reality. All too often, we brush off our sin because we know we're forgiven. I'm forgiven. Once saved, always saved. I am as good as gold. I'm not going to worry about it. But discipline can feel just like wrath. Discipline can feel just as devastating as wrath. The difference is, one, wrath leads to destruction. Discipline leads to correction. And for Christians who harm other Christians, there will be a price to be paid. But I love what we see in the book of Obadiah. I love this. As we consider the history of Edom and Israel, this was not Edom's first attack. This was not Edom's first attack. Edom and Israel had a history, a history of struggling against each other. And we've learned something that we've already learned about our God, that our God is patient. Our God is slow to anger, and He is rich in love. And He desires that He not bring harm on anyone, but rather that we would come to a point of confession and repentance. And so... There is good news if you are an attacker. There is good news that God God is drawing you to repentance. He is not throwing you under a bus. (laughs) God wants your heart. God desires your heart. But if you do not give it to Him, if you continue to sin, you continue to attack, 
You continue to stand on the other side. You continue to gossip. You continue to plot. When you do these things, God will discipline and it will hurt. But I love verse 17. For those who are attacked, for those who have been bludgeoned, for those who have been hurt so deeply by their brothers and sisters in Christ. God says, but on Mount Zion, there will be deliverance. By the grace of God, he will deliver you. It does not change the fact that it hurts. It doesn't change the fact that it hurts. The deliverance of God does not take away the pain of someone that hurts you. Okay? And it does not change the fact that you are still required, according to the scriptures, to forgive that person. It does not change those things. But what it does tell us is that no matter the situation, no matter the hurt, no matter what was done to you, God will pull you through. God did not leave his son in the grip of death but raised him to eternal life. And so he will not leave us, his adopted children, in the grip of despair, but will raise us to eternal joy. Of all the conflicts and all the wars in U.S. history, the one that claimed more American lives than all others is our own civil war. Brothers fought against brothers, Fathers fought against their sons. And every time that a bullet was fired, and every time that a bomb exploded, and another man hit the ground dead, everybody lost. Whether you were wearing the navy blue of the Union, or you were wearing the gray of the Confederacy, they were all American. And 625,000 Americans lost their lives in that battle. Every time we attack each other, Christians, brothers, sisters, followers of Jesus, nobody wins. Nobody wins. Somebody may get their way. Somebody may change somebody's actions. But everyone loses. The bitterness that is, that is birthed through that, the anger, the hurt, it all, is, it all compounds exponentially, like we said earlier. And everyone loses. So let us not tear each other down. Church of Jesus Christ, let us not tear each other down in order to gain stature. Let us not tear each other down in order to raise our position. Let us not tear each other down in order to boast in our pride. Let us not tear each other down just so we can have our way. Let us rather follow the advice of the scriptures through the Apostle Paul. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Let's pray.
And we sin because we are sinners. And Lord, sometimes in that sin, we harm each other. We harm the ones who are so close to us. I've heard so many preachers say we're the only army in the world that shoots their own wounded. And God, there's truth in that. But there's a greater truth in your mercy. And there's a greater truth in your grace. And that is these things do not have to persist. These things do not have to last. These things can be ended by your grace, through your hand, and by your justice. God, I praise you. Praise you. Of all the times that I have hurt people, who I love. You have been patient with me, and I thank you that you were patient with us. Lord, let us not be satisfied in sitting in your patience when we could be getting our relationships right. So, Father, I pray that you would bring forgiveness And Father, that you would cultivate a heart that wants reconciliation. Father, that you would drop us to our knees in humility. That we may be able to say, yeah, I was wrong. I messed up. I apologize. Lord, may we not attack our brother, whether aggressively or passively. Rather, let's build each other up. Let us hold each other strong. Let's be together the army that you intended us to be. For your glory, for your kingdom, for your church. In Jesus' name I pray.